0: Welcome back to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? I'm Lisa. And I'm Shell. And we're back with another dose of true crime from the true north. This week's case took me a long time to bring myself to do because it's very dark. Although many people know who he is, there are still a lot that don't. So I decided that it was time. Today, I'm going to be talking about one of Canada's most prolific serial killers, Clifford Olson. Clifford Olson. His self-proclaimed title as the Beast of BC doesn't even measure up to how ruthless he truly was. This guy was a monster in every sense of the word, the absolute scum of the earth. And because of that, we're giving a trigger warning. All of the victims in this episode are children, and topics discussed involve extreme violence and sexual abuse. So if this is too difficult for you to hear, we understand, and we'll see you in our next episode in a couple weeks.
1: Long before the days of Paul Bernardo and Robert Pickton, a predator lived amongst us, prowling the streets of Vancouver suburbs, luring children into his car with promises of work and money. None of these innocent children knew their fate when they closed that car door they were now in the clutches of pure evil. In a span of eight months, this monster had killed 11 children until he was finally caught. But even behind bars, he managed to manipulate the justice system and the media for decades and tormented the families of his victims. This is the case of Clifford Olson, the Beast of BC. Take it away, girl.
0: Clifford Olson was no stranger to the judicial system. He was a very well-known criminal to the police. The majority of his adult life was spent in jail. In fact, he had been arrested 94 times for a variety of different crimes. 94 times? 94.
1: Like, what kind of crimes? Were they misdemeanors or were they actual crimes?
0: Everything you can think of. Robbery, theft, fraud, assault. All the things oh my god just an awful human already yeah in the short time that he was a free man he managed to kill 11 too many right under the rcmp's nose clifford olson was born on january 1st 1940 at st paul's hospital in vancouver bc and was the eldest of four children his father was a milkman and his mother was a homemaker The family lived in Richmond, a suburb of Vancouver, for the first several years of his life. Clifford had a fairly normal childhood, and being the firstborn child, his parents didn't really discipline him much, and he could basically manipulate his mother into letting him do whatever he wanted. From a young age, Clifford had a huge ego. He was loud, a show-off, and was always the kid in class that would misbehave just to get the attention. Some would say that this is just the class clown, but looking back in hindsight, they were clear signs of a narcissist. In elementary school, Clifford was a little shit. He was a bully and would always get into fights at school, but because of his small stature, he actually ended up being the one getting his ass kicked, so he asked his dad if he could take boxing lessons, and Clifford sought his revenge and would get his payback by beating up the boys at school. I bet being small was such an ego hit for him. Right? Yeah. He just had to be better. That much more. Yeah. yeah. Like going to boxing lessons and beating these kids up. Just starting oh, fights. But his mischief just escalated from there. At the age of 10, Clifford was already skipping school. 10. 10 years old. Like, You're a child. What are you
1: skipping school to go and do? like Where are you
0: going? <laughs> yeah, who are you going with? Oh my god. He became a little thief and would shoplift from stores and steal milk money off of people's doorsteps. Milk money? His dad's a milkman! I know! And some people would say that he kind of thought that he was entitled to this milk money because, oh, well, my dad's the milkman, so ultimately it's his money and, you know, it's mine too. I mean, as a young kid, you might make that association, right? Maybe. I mean, but all the other things don't make up for that. There's no excuse.
1: No, no, it's not an
0: excuse, but it's like, okay, I I get it where he's coming from, I guess. You could say that he was a natural-born con artist. For example, he would go into people's backyards, steal their vegetables from their garden, and then go knock on their doors and sell it back to them. With these people having no idea that they're just buying their own vegetables that they grew. Oh
1: my god, from a young age.
0: This is crazy. Like he, oh my god, he is a con man. He's a con con kid. Mm -hmm. And just knowing how clever that he was and how much he could dupe people, it just fed into his ego even more. When Clifford was 10 years old, his sexual deviance and aggression had already begun. He would pull a knife on young girls and make them remove their clothes and would molest them.
1: At 10? This is still at 10 years old.
0: What are the parents doing at this point? Uh, They kind of just like let him do his own thing, like he would get in trouble but they would just say like, you know, we can't really control him. Oh no, discipline this child. Oh my god. The only history of abuse that I could find from Clifford's childhood that could maybe explain his behavior was when he was 4 years old. His uncle was babysitting him and his female cousin, and he would make them play this game where he had them remove their clothes and lay face down on a bed. His uncle would also undress and would basically rub up against their bodies until he climaxed. And Clifford would go on to play this game with other children and would call himself the uncle. So fucked. Oh my god. It's just awful. Yeah. When Clifford was 13, he had been arrested a few times for mischief and theft, but with this natural manipulation skills and compulsive lying, he was able to weasel his way out of it and get the charges dropped. By the time he was 16, he failed the 8th grade 3 times. Not because of a low IQ, but because he just didn't care and he skipped so many classes, he was just failing.
1: Well, he was already skipping classes at 10. I'm sure (laughs) it just
0: continued into his teenage years. So he dropped out of school at 16 to go work at the Lonsdale Racetrack in Richmond, where he would relish in pickpocketing and stealing money from the register.
1: Again, what is... I just don't understand. Was there no discipline for this kid? No, there was not. Like, the parents were just kind of out of the picture. I guess they had three other kids to look after.
0: Right. After the three other kids were born, you know, he wasn't coddled anymore, and they just kind of let him do whatever he wanted. Go off on your own. Yeah. Fend for yourself, kind of. Clifford was tough, clever, charming, and had a lot of street smarts. And when the satisfaction of petty theft was wearing off, he began breaking into homes. When he was 17 years old, he got caught breaking into a woodworking warehouse and was sentenced to jail for nine months for the very first time. At 17, he was still a minor, so he was sent to the New Haven Correctional Centre for Youth in Burnaby, another suburb of Vancouver, about 30 minutes from Richmond. The Correctional Centre housed a couple dozen youth, and its main focus was on rehabilitation. New Haven had minimal security. In fact, The program was based around the honor system, and inmates were trusted to stay on the property. But Clifford had no intentions of rehabilitating, so he convinced two other inmates to escape, where they fled the property on foot. They came across a boat that was tied up along the Fraser River nearby, and they drove the boat to Vancouver. When Clifford showed up at his parents' house, they were mortified. Can you imagine, like, your son's in jail and he shows up at your front door? Yeah, so he just kind of
1: escapes this correctional facility with two other inmates. Yeah. How old is he at this point? 17. He's 17. Okay, so yeah, your parents are thinking, okay, he's in jail, and then, boom, he's on your doorstep. (laughs) What the fuck are you doing? Like, what do you do?
0: Do you turn him back into authorities? What did they do? Well, they actually convinced Clifford to turn himself back in, but he didn't do it out of guilt or because it was the right thing to do. He was doing it because he figured it was less work than trying to stay on the run. So, ultimately, it was his choice to go back. Right, okay. When he returned, he was sentenced an additional year. He ended up being released on parole early for good behavior in 1958, but he just couldn't help himself. Just two months later, he got caught again for breaking and entering and went right back in the slammer. So he's basically spending the majority
1: of his youth in jail jail.
0: at this point. Yeah. Clifford's first escape from jail wouldn't be his last. On his second escape, he simply just ran and hopped the fence in broad daylight. But he didn't get far and was taken down by the guards. After his second escape attempt, he was sent to a higher security prison in Saskatchewan. But almost as soon as he got there, he somehow managed to steal someone's street clothes and literally just walked out the front door. Oh my God. This guy, right? Like escaping almost is becoming a game and he's enjoying like the mockery of the prison's so-called tight security.
1: Totally. It probably is a challenge to him. Yes. He's just like, how can I get out of this place? Oh yeah.
0: But not only that, his escape attempts were also getting his name in the paper, which his ego just loved. Oh, a narcissist loves that. Oh, yeah. In his life, Clifford managed to escape jail seven times. (laughs) Oh
1: my god. What a joke. I know you said 95 times that he was charged or arrested or something, but like this, you don't really understand how many times that is.
0: 94 times you've been arrested yeah. 94 times it's crazy and yeah and you managed to escape jail seven times i mean not every time was he actually getting away like he was getting caught but right. like he managed to do it but then he quickly got caught one of his most talked about escapes was one that he had concocted over a series of months clifford was granted access to the library and began researching kidney disease so he began complaining of mild symptoms and would be sent to the doctor and each time he would go back, he gradually made his symptoms appear worse. Finally, the doctor asked him to provide a urine sample. They wanted to check for blood in the urine. Depending on the severity of the condition, like kidney stones, infection, or a tumor, there would be microscopic traces or even visible blood in the urine. So when Clifford went to pee in the cup, he cut himself and squeezed his blood into the urine sample. This is next level. I know. Like, he is just planning this whole thing from the beginning. Yeah, Yeah. This prompted the doctor to send him to the hospital to do an x-ray, but Clifford hadn't planned it as perfectly as he thought. Because when they did the x-ray of his abdomen, they discovered that he had stolen a key to his handcuffs and had it hidden in his rectum.
1: Oh my... Oh my god. His
0: plan kind of flopped and he was sent back to jail. In 1961, he was released after three years in prison, and once again, he got right back into crime, and after only three months as a free man, was sent back to prison for fraud. Shortly after he was released in 1962, he was arrested again for stealing from a grocery store and served another two years in jail. When he was released in 1964, at the age of 24, he was arrested in Washington, just south of our border, for a hit and run, And being the manipulator and sweet talker that he was, he convinced his lawyer to let him leave the police station to go withdraw his bail money. Oh, he he just went on the run. Totally. He fled back to Canada. (laughs) 100%. Of course. In their defense, Washington didn't have a computer system to just quickly look up someone's criminal history in Canada. So they had no idea of his insane track record that he had back home. Right, they weren't, uh, like, aware of what he was capable of. Right, of the risk that he was. Eventually, he was caught and went back for more jail time. I kid you not, Clifford spent the majority of his adult life in jail with only four years total as a free man.
1: This is wild. He He keeps getting put into prison and then either escaping, running away, or just serving his time and getting out and then going right back in
0: again. Right. I mean, that happens, though. People just keep going back. He's a bad egg. Seriously. He's a bad egg. During his time spent in jail was when Clifford began raping other inmates. And just for perspective, Clifford was 5'7 and weighed 160 pounds. Not a big guy at all. So this just goes to show the amount of power that he had over people.
1: Totally. I think he's probably using his talent and manipulation at the same time to just probably make himself well-known in the prison. Exactly. It's
0: awful though that he starts raping inmates. Yeah, I mean, and underage inmates too, like young, oh, young guys. God. During his many stints in prison, Clifford gained the glowing reputation of being a snitch or a rat. He was ruthless and would throw any of his fellow inmates under the bus if it meant that he had a chance at getting rewarded with lesser time. And most of the time, it worked. He had a way of befriending and charming the guards. Each time he was released from jail, Clifford would seduce underaged girls and boys, all the while making his living by robbing and committing fraud across Canada. In 1973, he began dating a young woman named Evelyn. Evelyn was aware of his deviant ways and thieving, but when she found out that he had stolen $1,000 from her own grandma, she reported him to the police, and Clifford went back on the run until he was caught again and sentenced to four more years in jail. At this point, prison was more like a second home to Clifford. He knew exactly how to milk the system as soon as he was back in, and the snitching started up again. So he would snitch, get his jail time reduced. Then he would go out into the world, get
1: released. Yep. And then he would manipulate and seduce these younger kids and molesting them at, at this time. Like, he, he's been like a serial molester mm-hmm. for since he's been a kid. Since basically 10 years old. It's just this type of behavior, I don't know why it wasn't noticed earlier.
0: Because he hadn't been arrested for that yet.
1: Yeah, I know he hasn't really escalated
0: at this point. Yeah, it's kind of going under the radar still. Yeah. But his reputation as a rat and a pedophile actually followed him to jail. So the inmates actually caught wind of this, and it made him the most hated man amongst the other inmates. One time, Clifford was playing poker with a group of inmates, which was actually a plan to ambush and kill him. Clifford ended up getting stabbed seven times, having to be sent to the hospital, and miraculously survived his injuries. Too bad. Honestly, I mean, it makes sense.
1: Inmates have children, they have nieces and nephews. Oh, yeah. like it's, it's just if you're labeled a pedophile and you go to prison, oh, yeah. you have a target on your back, 100%. They're
0: coming for you. And especially if you're ratting them out in jail, too. 100%. Like you're, yeah. Oh, my God. You're already a rat and a snitch, and now you're a pedophile? Like... Yeah, I'm not surprised that he was targeted and stabbed. So this attack ended up working in Clifford's favor even more. Being the weasel he was, he filed a complaint that the reason he was attacked was because he had been working as an informant for the police, so it was their fault. He actually convinced the Saskatchewan Criminal Compensation Board to give him $3,500 for his quote, Unusual degree of moral and physical courage. Oh
1: my god. That makes me sick. How is this even possible? Are they not looking at his record? Exactly. Are they not looking at his history? Yeah, what courage? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Fuck. What a load of shit. (sighs) Okay, if I think of this from law enforcement side, if they do have someone in prison that is giving them valuable
0: information yeah, on inmates. they're getting convictions because of his information.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that has value, that has weight. I do understand that. And of course, Clifford is the type of person that's going to use that in his favor. Totally.
0: Clifford's pedophilia had now escalated by this point. And whenever he was out on parole, he would seize any opportunity that he had. He would molest his girlfriend's children and even his sister's children. When he was out of prison in 1978, he was arrested for sexually assaulting a seven-year-old girl and was sent back to jail at the age of 38. So now it's on his record. Seven years old. Seven. And he was and 38. he's 38. That's disgusting. Yeah. In 1980, he befriended and manipulated inmate Gary Marsu into writing a confession to the rape and murder of a nine-year-old girl, a difficult task that he was highly praised for. Because of this informant work, Clifford was rewarded early parole in January of 1980, and he was once again back on the street at the age of 40. One month later, he met his future wife, Joan Hale, at a local bar one night in February of 1980. Joan had recently divorced from an abusive relationship and had received a large settlement. To Joan, Clifford seemed to be the protector and charmer that she needed, but to Clifford, Joan was vulnerable and a perfect target to con. Their romance took off fast. Clifford made Joan fall madly in love with him, showering her with affection and adoration. And as soon as he had her wrapped around his finger, his behavior changed. He stopped being affectionate and began drinking more heavily and using sleeping pills. When she confronted him, he lashed out on her and backed her into a corner. His behaviour escalated even more and then the abuse started. According to Joan, Clifford began physically abusing and raping her within the first few months of their relationship. Sadly, she had become victim to another abuser. Soon after, she became pregnant with his baby. She was hoping that this would end his violence and bring out his loving side. But little did she know, his killing spree was about to begin. Oh my god. It kind of reminds me in a way of Bundy. You know, they have the yes. relationship and even, you know, Gary Ridgway. They, they're they married and they have kids. It's all this
1: facade, right? I mean, Ted Bundy escaped from jail twice, right? And was a master manipulator. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, yeah, it follows a similar story.
0: Mm -hmm. Clifford was well known amongst the local teens in the area and would often hang around arcades and the Lougheed Mall. He would charm his way into making acquaintances so that he could gain their trust. He would rent different cars and go cruise the streets for children that would be by themselves either waiting at bus stops, hitchhiking, or walking alone. His victims ranged between 9 and 18 years old, boy or girl, and had no preference in ethnicity, making it extremely difficult to detect a pattern and link any of them. He would always approach them in a friendly manner and start the conversations off by asking for directions. He would spend the first few minutes just getting to know the child and getting a sense if they came from an abusive or low-income family, He wanted them vulnerable. Most of the time, he would choose children that were high risk and whose absences might not be detected right away. He would then offer them a high paying job to do window washing at his construction sites, flashing his fancy business cards. Once they agreed, he would invite them into his car to go see the work site and introduce them to some of the other employees that they would be working with. Once in his car, He would offer them beer to celebrate the new job and they would drive around for a while as he fed them more and more beer. What they didn't know was that he would lace their beer with chloral hydrate, a strong sedative. When the child would complain about being too drunk or delirious, he would offer them pills saying that they would reverse the alcohol and sober them up. But in reality, it was more chloral hydrate and would completely knock these children out. But sometimes they were still awake and unable to defend themselves. Clifford would rape and sodomize his victims multiple times. And when he was finished, he would experiment with different ways to torture and kill them. Now to be clear, Clifford Olson is responsible for at least 11 murders that we know of, but there are still as many as 30 other missing persons cases and unsolved murders from this time that have similarities to Olsen's murders. But he didn't always kill his victims. Many times he would rape and sodomize and then let them go. And his decision to kill would just depend on his mood that day. I know you said this in the beginning, but he is
1: literal scum of the earth. I know. Words just can't even describe it. It's just the worst thing. You're preying on not only children, but also children who are, you know, youth at risk, who are from low-income homes. So he's just adding all of these factors up mm-hmm. to make himself be able to pull this off. Exactly. It's so awful. I can't even imagine. I mean, you know, we grow up and our parents tell us, don't talk to strangers. Yeah. You know, kind of that whole speech, right? And mm-hmm. honestly, this is fucking why. Because mm-hmm. there are crazy predators
0: out there yeah that can make it so convincing for you oh he's a friendly yeah. guy oh he's gonna pay me money yeah offering me beer oh i've yeah. never had yeah, beer. yeah like, sweet i'm a teenager this guy's giving me free beer i mean when we were in high school we would like look for people to go you know give us a boot from the liquor store i know <laughs> so this guy's know. giving them free beer it's just all the things oh it adds up to just absolute tragedy oh yeah. my god Clifford took advantage of any opportunity that he could to molest and rape children whenever he was in their presence. He used his charm and manipulation to get what he wanted. So going back to November 17, 1980, pregnant Joan had had enough of his abuse, so she packed up her things and left while Clifford was at the liquor store. When he came home and realized she was gone, he got back into his car to go look for her, He was driving around the Newton area of Surrey, which is another suburb of Vancouver, when 12-year-old Christine Weller caught his eye. She was standing outside a pub with her bike. He drove up to her and rolled his window down and began chatting with her. Christine lived in an abusive home with her parents in a motel down the road. Her father was out of work and they were hard pressed for money. During the short time that she talked with Clifford, he had convinced her to work for his construction company, washing windows. He flashed his business card and offered her $10 an hour, which at the time was three times what minimum wage was. He invited her to go check out the work site where she would be working in a couple of days. So she got in. They then drove off as he began feeding her beers. He drove to a secluded area near River Road in Richmond once she was incoherent. And that's where he repeatedly raped 12-year-old Christine vaginally and anally. He tried to strangle her with his belt, but after several minutes and aching hands, she was still breathing. This was his very first murder, so he had not anticipated it to be so difficult to strangle someone. So he used his knife and stabbed her in the chest and abdomen multiple times. Clifford hid Christine's body in some nearby bushes and left. Christine had already run away from home a few times before, and it wouldn't be abnormal for her to stay at a friend's house for a few days without calling. So by the time her family had realized she was missing, it had already been one week. And at the time, runaways were a common occurrence. So the RCMP just assumed that Christine had also run away. Until her body was found one month later by a pedestrian walking by on Christmas Day. Honestly, I mean... Yes, you've been a
1: runaway before. That's what the police are going to think happened again. It's just so sad. It's so sad. And this is his first, and we know that there are ten more
0: that we know of. It's just the beginning. Clifford continued to rape young children and teens and would let them go free. Clifford Olson is known for killing children. But what people may not realize is that he raped so many more children and just let them go until four months had gone by and rape wasn't enough of a rush to satisfy him anymore. In April of 1981, Joan gave birth to their son and was pressured by Clifford to name the child after him. Classic narcissist. Oh my god, classic. Just days after the birth of his first child, Clifford was back on the streets hunting for his next victim. On April 16th, 1981, Clifford spotted 13-year-old Colleen Danio, who was skateboarding down a quiet road. He used his routine tactics of offering her a job, getting her in his car, feeding her alcohol and sleeping pills so that he could ultimately rape and murder her. Instead of strangling Colleen like he did to Christine Weller, he wanted to try an experiment. He used a needle and an empty syringe to inject an air bubble into one of her arteries. But he failed to find an artery and it didn't work so he bludgeoned colleen with a hammer and left her body in a wooded area in surrey covered in branches and leaves when she was reported missing by her grandmother the rcmp again assumed that she was another runaway even though it was out of character for her so her disappearance got brushed off six days later clifford picked up a 16 year old boy named darren johnsrood and drove him to a forested area near the Fraser River. He got him drunk, fed him chloral hydrate until he was unconscious. He then beat his skull with a hammer, raped him, and left Darren in a ditch. Once again, Darren was treated like a runaway, even though his parents reported him missing right away, saying that it was out of character for him. Almost two weeks later, Darren's body was found in the ditch. His body was so decomposed and his face was so badly beaten from the hammer that they could not identify him right away. They told Darren's parents that it wasn't him. But then when they checked the dental records, they realized they were wrong and it was Darren. And they had to go tell his parents of the colossal mistake that they had made. Could you imagine?
1: No, I can't imagine and This is three children at this point that they know of yeah, that have been raped, murdered, found in a similar area. Like, the police aren't putting
0: anything together at this point. Not yet, because in that day, it was unheard of that a serial killer was bisexual, killing both girls and boys. So not only were they not linking the murders, but it seemed like they also weren't linking the missing children either. So they were just assuming that everyone was just a freaking runaway.
1: Right. Okay. I mean, it makes sense. Obviously, like Clifford Olson didn't have a preference, whether it was young girls or young boys. But still, I mean, you find three runaways that you think were runaways who end Mm -hmm. up dead, raped, and in a ditch or left Mm -hmm. somewhere. Wouldn't you just connect the dots a little bit? Like anyone. Just say, hmm.
0: What if this is maybe the same person? I know, exactly. Like, sure, one of them was strangled and the other ones were, you know, bludgeoned with a hammer. There's maybe thinking that those two methods of killing aren't the same person. I guess so. I guess at that time, we have to remember, this is a long time ago. Yeah. Whereas, like, their
1: MO could be anything. Like, yeah. the MO could change because a, something didn't work the first time. Exactly. Or he's testing something new. It's just there's so many different factors that I'm sure obviously they didn't consider at the time. But Mm -hmm. for me, obviously for us looking in hindsight, I'm just like, why, why didn't they at least think could these be connected? I know. Let's
0: explore that avenue and see where it leads. Three weeks after killing Darren, Clifford attended the birthday party of his friend's five-year-old child. And this piece of shit raped the five-year-old. It's unclear if Clifford was caught in the act, but he was arrested and apparently there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. So once again, he was set free. I don't know why he wouldn't be murdered at this point. And why is he going to a birthday party? Who is inviting him? I don't know. know. Who are his friends?
1: Like, I don't even understand how this man has any friends or anyone
0: that would want to invite them to their child's party. I don't know. Five days after the rape of his friend's child, on May 19, 1981, Clifford picked up 16-year-old hitchhiker Sandra Wolfsteiner. Again, he offered her a job, got her drunk, drugged her, raped, and then bludgeoned her to death with a hammer. He left her in a forested area near a lake in Chilliwack and covered her with branches and leaves. Sandra was reported missing by her boyfriend when she didn't show up for their date that day, And once again, without any real reason, the RCMP assumed she was a runaway and made a shit effort at investigating her disappearance. So that's Christine, Colleen, Darren, and Sandra. And they are all brushed off from the get-go. One week later on May 26th, Clifford picked up 15-year-old Kathy Solo, who had just dropped out of school. So his ploy of offering her work unsurprisingly worked because she needed some money. But this time he let his own drinking get out of hand, and he ended up flipping his car when he reached over to grope Kathy once she was incoherent. Some men nearby saw the accident and noticed that a much older man was pulling a teenaged girl out who was clearly intoxicated. The man who goes by the name Spud called a friend who worked at a towing company and told him to call the police to report the creep and the inebriated teen spud offered clifford a ride to the towing station knowing that the police were going to be there waiting when they got to the towing company clifford spotted the police and tried to pick up kathy and make a run for it how do you pick up a person dead weight and run with them while the police are chasing you uh, I don't know. You're an idiot. Obviously, he didn't think that this would happen. Yeah.
1: So I'm hoping that this is like, well, I guess this isn't the beginning of the end because we still know that there are more victims. I, I know. I know. But it's just like, okay, maybe someone's catching on. Maybe law enforcement at this point will catch on that this guy is obviously
0: not a good fucking guy. hmm So police obviously caught up to him and he was arrested. But get this. Because Kathy had no recollection of what he had done to her in the car, there was no evidence to hold him. Well, they couldn't find any of what was in the beer. Like, they couldn't have,
1: I mean... Tested
0: that? It's frickin' 1980, right? Like, Ugh. 1981. Like, what are they testing for at the time? They don't even know what they're looking for. I doubt they're testing her blood to see if there was something in her system. Right. So they, they ended up charging him with impaired driving and contributing to juvenile delinquency. So basically just giving her alcohol. Mm-hmm. The investigator for this case, Daryl Kettles, looked into Clifford's criminal history and it immediately set off red flags. So Daryl went to talk to Kathy and learned about the job that he had offered her and that the area that he had picked her up from was extremely close to where Darren Johnsrud had also gone missing from. It didn't take long for Daryl Kettles to realize that it was Clifford Olson who was responsible for the recent missing and murdered children. Kettles contacted the lead investigator for Christine Weller and Darren's case, but he didn't have concrete evidence, and his suspicions were brushed off. No fucking way. Yeah. Like, at least, okay, we have one
1: person connecting the dots, finally saying, hey. This guy is not a good guy. I've looked at his history. He was found with this young girl and it was right next to the same area where this other boy was missing from and yeah. was missing. Like, obviously, we are looking in hindsight, but it's not that hard to put some pieces together and just, you know, launch an investigation into this guy mm-hmm. and just cover all your bases. Mm-hmm. He's obviously not a good guy anyways, so go after him. It's not like he's some stand-up suburban dad with a family and has no record. Right. Like, this guy has been in and out of jail for so long, has a history of being a pedophile. At least do your fucking due diligence and look into him. I agree. Getting very worked oh, up Oh yeah, about this. girl. Oh I, yeah. I know this case, and every time I hear it, I get worked up. I know.
0: Three weeks later on June 21st, 13-year-old Ada Court was lured into Clifford's car near Coquitlam, and he repeated the same gruesome process, raping and killing her. She was reported missing, and for some reason, they actually did take her disappearance seriously and not as a runaway. Obviously, I think that's because they're starting to, you know, talk about him a little bit. They're not fully onto him, but they're like, okay, maybe Kettles is actually onto something.
1: Well, and maybe when there's another missing child, don't just dismiss it as a runaway for the fifth time in a row. Let's learn from our mistakes. For the love of God. Yeah. Every single one has turned up murdered. So maybe let's not dismiss it from the Mm get-go. Maybe. Let's think about it.
0: One week later on July 2nd, Clifford abducted nine-year-old Simon Partington. He brought the boy back to the location of his first murder where he raped stabbed and strangled him to death he then dumped his body in the fraser river and drove away as if it was nothing but because simon was only nine years old he didn't fall into the usual age bracket for runaways so this was treated like an abduction immediately the investigator from ada's case less heard about Daryl Kettle's theory about Clifford being the suspect, and he completely got on board. Finally! Yeah. He started asking around and found out about Clifford being known to offer kids jobs in the area. The dots were starting to connect. So he created a profile, and Clifford was now one of their main suspects. One week after murdering Simon Partington, 15-year-old Judy Kozma met the same fate. She had agreed to working for him on a previous day, and he had come back to pick her up for the work she agreed to do. He drugged, raped, and strangled her, leaving her body in a wooded area near Weaver Lake. But before leaving her body, he stole her address book and had the nerve to call her friends, saying, You're next. He did not. He did. Oh my god, could they... could they, I guess they couldn't trace it because it's her phone. No, no. Oh my God. I know. On
1: July 15th, 1981,
0: the RCMP were finally taking Clifford seriously as a suspect. Les and Daryl presented their case at a law enforcement conference. There was no concrete plan yet, but Clifford had no clue that they were on to him. One week later on July 23rd, 15-year-old Raymond King Jr., was lured by Clifford's promise for high paying work. Raymond was spending the summer looking for work, so this was exactly what he wanted. Clifford repeated his process of drugging and raping. Then he used a hammer to force a nail into Raymond's head. Raymond was still breathing and Clifford began to rape him again. He then killed him by smashing boulders on his head he rolled Raymond's body off a cliff near Weaver Lake. Raymond's disappearance was taken seriously since the RCMP were already onto Clifford. On the same day as Raymond's murder, Detective Dennis Tarr made official contact with Clifford. He knocked on his door and told Clifford he was aware of his informant work while he had been in jail, and he was wondering if he'd be willing to help him out as an informant with some of the missing and murdered children cases that were growing rampant in the lower mainland being the narcissist that he was of course he agreed to it after his meeting with clifford though it turned out that he couldn't really get much information from him he was just stonewalled straight face didn't crack didn't really give him anything that he could use against him two days later two days later he lured 18 year old sigrin Arnd. Who was visiting family from germany for the summer clifford drugged raped and beat sigrin to death with a hammer and left her body in a ditch in richmond that same day on july 25th jody kosma's body was discovered from the two weeks prior this was when the rcmp decided that they had to put clifford under surveillance but surveillance costs a lot of money to pay people to work around the clock So they decided they would only do it during the day. Why? Money. 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 I'm sorry.
1: RCMP. How many children have to die? I know. Before you can put some fucking money behind finding their killer. Do you know how insulting that is to the
0: parents? Like, you only care so much about these kids during the day. Like, yeah. It's disrespectful. It's awful. I know that The police
1: completely botched this whole thing from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I know this, but it surprises me still when I hear it again and again. I know. When I listen to this case. It's awful. And no, I just I fucking hate it. How many kids have to die? How many?
0: I know. It's awful. So with this half-assed surveillance, it allowed Clifford to continue to slip through their fingers and kill again. Right under their goddamn noses. Two days later, he did it again. This time to 15-year-old Terry Lynn Carson, who was hitchhiking to work in a town near Hope. He raped her just off the highway and stabbed her in the head with a screwdriver. He dragged her body away from the road and left her near the Fraser River. Three days later, on July 30th, 1981, He picked up 17-year-old Louise Chartrand, who was hitchhiking to work. Clifford drugged, raped, and beat her to death with a hammer and left her body in a gravel pit in Whistler. On August 5th, the body of Raymond King Jr. was found, including the skull and upper jawbone of Ada Court. Two days later, on August 7th, the RCMP finally launched 24-hour surveillance on Clifford. Five days later, on August 12th, 1981, they followed Clifford to Vancouver Island, where they watched him pick up two young female hitchhikers near Ucluelet. That's when they had to step in, and they ambushed Clifford and placed him under arrest. That was the last day Clifford ever walked the streets as a free man. When he was in custody, he denied that he had intentions of harming the two hitchhikers, But when police found that address book belonging to Judy Kozma inside his car, he knew he was fucked. So being the piece of shit that he was, he made them an offer. He admitted to killing all 11 children and offered to give the locations of their bodies for $100,000. $10,000 per body. You've gotta be fucking kidding me. And he said, that it all had to go to his wife, Joan. After much thought and consideration, the judge agreed and a deal with the devil was made. I hate this part. So if you look it up, this was called the cash for bodies deal. The families of the victims were outraged. Like how does a serial killer end up getting paid for his crimes?
1: 100% and They were already too fucking stingy to do 24-hour surveillance in the past, but now they're just going to shell out
0: $100,000. I know. To this murderer. According to the prosecution, because Clifford was so good at disposing the evidence and making it difficult to link them all, they didn't have a lot of hard evidence actually against him. And knowing how he made a career out of robbery and theft... They believed that this was the only way they were going to get him to cooperate and provide the families with the closure that they deserved. The money went to Joan and their son and was put into a trust fund, and Clifford was sentenced 11 consecutive life sentences. But this wasn't the end of Clifford's torment. He began sending letters to the victim's families describing their children's murders in detail they still felt like he could get to them. Once this was quickly brought to the prison's attention, his mail was closely monitored. Over the years, he tried to apply for parole, but obviously it was denied and he was never getting out. In 2010, the public found out that when Clifford had turned 65, he began collecting a pension in jail. He had been collecting $1,200 a month for five years before people had found out. The public outcry did not go unheard, and the pension was canceled for Clifford as well as anyone in jail for multiple murders.
1: Not just murders, these are child murders. And our taxpayer dollars are funding the pension of some fucking serial killer? We're already funding the freaking jail in general. Like, why the fuck do you get more money? No.
0: Mm -mm. No, 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 no. (laughs) No way. Not for that man. That blows my mind. Clifford Olson died from cancer at the age of 71 in a Quebec hospital. I hope he's burning in hell. Good fucking riddance. Clifford Olson was a diabolical monster. And this case shone a bright spotlight on the massive mistakes, carelessness, and the botched investigation that the RCMP had made. At least 11 children died at the hands of this monster. And we hope that this case was a huge lesson learned so that someone like him can never slip through the cracks again. But as we know, another one did. And that's for another episode. Until then, We are no longer wondering, whose crime is it anyway? I want to share a clip of Clifford Olson speaking to two people on the phone while he was in jail. Just a heads up, these people do sound a little bit heartless, but they're doing it so that they can open him up and that he can talk. And this is the only audio file that I could find of Clifford's voice.
1: So if anybody ever asks me, I'm going to tell them that you are innocent of all... All that you never did that. I'm gonna, If anybody ever asks me, I'm gonna tell them that you are innocent. Of what? Of 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 all those murders. No, no, I killed eleven. Oh, oh, 11. but but I'm saying you want me to say that you're innocent. I what? You want me to tell people you're innocent though? No, no, you I'm <laughs> I I'm innocent. I plead guilty, man. Oh, you did. Oh, I didn't know that. I see. Get with the fucking... I know you did, Clifford. Signor, that's her last name. Her first, la- first name is Elizabeth. She's a German girl. Uh-huh. years old. yeah. Yeah, I met her in August. I met her in August there. Uh, mm-hmm. We were at a pub there, and we danced and went out, and then she, she uh, passed out, and that was it. She drowned. She drowned it in the, uh, in the ditch there. Never found her body till I I give it to her. How, how did you end it all, though? I mean, what was... Who were well, in the beer? Follow me? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. After 20 minutes, you were You couldn't wake up. Yeah, In three days, you get what I'm getting at? All right. All right. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We will be back in two weeks with a brand new case. Until then... Follow us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and on Twitter at Whose Crime Pod. And if you would like to support our show, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Whose Crime Podcast. Bye. Toodles.